This is RehabCast. From the archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation, this is RehabCast, and I'm Ford Vox. Today, we're going to travel to Phoenix, Arizona, and Milan, Italy, to hear from neurorehab researchers who are improving gait and balance with new rehabilitation treatments for Parkinson's disease. And like Dr. Krishnamurthy, you might want to take up one of these treatments for yourself. Oh, yeah, I practiced a lot. As soon as I got this idea and I, I got this study funded, I, I think um, I joined a pulse riding group uh, in uh, Scottsdale area in the Phoenix Metropolitan. And then I, uh, I used poles um, uh, um, very frequently. We aim to be a must-listen for the broad rehabilitation medicine community. RehabCast is for anyone interested in the restoration of function following injury and disease. Uh, we're going to present you here with in-depth interviews with authors publishing in the archives of PM&R. We explore cutting-edge rehabilitation science here, of course, the only kind that the archives publishes. And I'm going to be your guide. I'm a PM&R physician, and I subspecialize in brain injury medicine. I'm lucky to be based at one of the ultimate places to practice my craft in the United States. That's the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia. But while my medical practice always comes first, I'm more than a doctor. I'm also a healthcare journalist who reads and writes about everything taking place in medical practice and healthcare policy today, as much as I possibly can anyway. I'll write about stuff ranging from feature stories to hot take opinion pieces that my editor wants back in a few hours. And I provide consumer health news and advice as Atlanta Public Radio's medical analyst. So in that spirit, you're gonna certainly hear my viewpoint in this podcast. Before we get to the interviews, let's start with the news. Congrats are in order for occupational therapy. The OT profession traces its founding back to March 15, 1917, at a meeting in upstate New York. An architect by trade with some medical background named George Edward Barton gave that field its name a few years earlier, and he helped organize that founding meeting. While working in Colorado on behalf of the governor, investigating famine among farmers, Mr. Barton suffered severe frostbite, necessitating the amputation of two toes on his left foot. But more seriously, he became paralyzed on his left side following surgery. He decided to come to Clifton, New York for the Clifton Springs Sanitarium. The region was well-renowned throughout the country for its sulfur springs. Medical practitioners at the time thought that water's sulfur content held curative properties. But Mr. Barton found more than spring water infused with sulfur. Industriousness proved a better salve than R&R. He pushed what he first called the work cure, productive activities adapted as necessary to one's disabilities. And he was his own first patient. He directed the building of Consolation House, his occupational therapy clinic there in Clifton Springs, from his wheelchair. The Consolation House included a workshop adapted to impairments as necessary and a vocational rehabilitation training service. That first meeting of what was then called the National Society for the Promotion of Occupational Therapy, now of course known as the American Occupational Therapy Association, was three years before the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote. But two women were named society officers back then, Vice President Eleanor Clark Slagle and Secretary Isabel Newton. The following month, the United States entered World War I, then of course known as the Great War. In that summer, the draft lottery started up. On June 5, 1917, 10 million men got in line, 
as every American between the ages of 21 and 30 registered for the first U.S. draft since the Civil War. On July 20th, Secretary of War Baker pulled a number from a goldfish bowl and the great draft lottery was on. For more than 14 hours straight, officials drew numbers to determine the order in which the men were to be called to the colors. Ultimately, we sent over two million soldiers to the battlefields, and then we saw 200,000 return home with war wounds. Barton had broad connections in Europe, and he contributed to the build-out of rehabilitation services for injured soldiers at home and abroad. The huge job of providing medical care, disability benefits, and vocational rehabilitation to so many great war veterans ultimately led to the organization of the Veterans Administration in 1930. The VA is still the single largest employer of OTs and OT assistants. Now, speaking of grand and historic meetings, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine has two in Atlanta this year. Don't miss the mid-year meeting on April 27th through April 29th. That one features a workshop on translating the growing stroke rehabilitation evidence base into daily practice. The meeting also includes the popular cognitive rehabilitation training workshop, which starts on April 26th. And then, of course, there's the big annual conference, October 23rd through the 28th. I think Atlanta is a pretty fitting city to play host to the diverse and dynamic field of rehabilitation medicine this year. The cranes are up all over town. Atlanta is always undergoing transformation, but now really more than ever. And don't forget to make a visit to the Shepherd Center. Say hi to me while you're here. The biggest policy news right now is, of course, what's going to happen with the ACA under a Republican Congress and President. Though it's got some thorny problems, for sure, uh, most hospital groups and most clinical groups have generally been supportive of the ACA. The coverage has made safety net hospitals more stable. Rehabilitation is one of the essential benefits the law requires all insurance plans to cover. And though it's not the ideal scenario for insurers by any means, I personally have seen several patients who've been able to get coverage in the midst of long hospital stays. That's something that would never have happened before the ACA. Tom Price, the new HHS secretary, spent some time overseeing the orthopedic clinic at Grady Memorial Hospital. That's the state of Georgia's major safety net hospital situated in downtown Atlanta. He did that while building up his political career. I don't know to what extent we'll see that experience reflected in his administration of CMS and his orchestration of really the next wave of healthcare reform. But so far, a major concept for those with pre-existing conditions seems to be high-risk pools. Those are types of plans that are typically state-based, and they can run out of resources, capping benefits. Everyone in rehab deals with arbitrary coverage caps. We're going to need to advocate for our patients on this one. As you all know, it's hard enough recovering from injury and disease without having to wonder how you'll ever afford insurance again. The other big policy debate is, of course, what to do about the growing opioid abuse epidemic. Many states are trying to limit opioid prescribing. There are a number of measures up for debate in Congress as well. The push could do some harm, uh, limiting access for legitimate pain patients. That's according to some pain specialists. And some of the measures up for debate have been shockingly draconian. Uh, here in Georgia, one version of a bill winding its way through the state legislature would have subjected doctors to misdemeanors and then felony criminal prosecution if they failed to check the prescription dog monitoring database before prescribing an opioid in just four instances. Fortunately, that provision in the bill did get edited out. Now, one positive aspect of the push to root out all unnecessary opioid prescribing is that chronic pain treatment is now clearly an interdisciplinary activity. 
pain services that don't work closely with psychology and physical therapy just don't cut it. Demand for a broad range of therapeutic modalities is sure to go up, and that's certainly a positive for patients who might have just been handed out pills a few years ago. Of course, never buy a PM&R doctor. Now, don't look to benzodiazepines in place of those opioids. Evidence-based medicine has finally caught up uh, with the practice of prescribing Valium, yes, Valium, for acute back pain. That's sometimes done in ERs. So this is thanks to a new study from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York and published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. The study looked at people who were presenting to the ER with acute low back pain. Uh, it gave them either naproxen, Valium, or placebo. Most everyone improved three months out, no matter what pills they got. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be taking a close look at two Parkinson's studies that uh, you'll find in the pages of the archives. But first, amantadine. It's, of course, an old Parkinson medication that's made its way into the treatment of other neurological conditions, most famously as a neurostimulant useful for treating disordered consciousness following TBI. Now it's on the road to gaining another life as a treatment for gait impairment and multiple sclerosis. Last month at the America's Committee for Treatment and Research in Multiple Sclerosis, Dr. Jeffrey Cohen announced findings from his stage two trial of an investigational long-acting formulation of amantadine for walking impairment. This drug, which is currently called ADS-5102, is taken once at night, and when compared to placebo, subjects walk 17% faster on the drug. The FDA is currently also considering whether to approve ADS-5102 for Parkinson dyskinesias as well. I spoke with Davide Catania and Ilaria Carpanella of the Don Carlo Nocchi Foundation in Milan, Italy. Davide is head of the Gait and Balance Disorders Laboratory there, and Ilaria is a biomedical engineer. I should say that the Don Carlo Nocchi Foundation is a major rehabilitation system throughout Italy, and it publishes much excellent research. Their study is entitled Wearable Sensor-Based Biofeedback Training for Balance and Gait in Parkinson's Disease, a Pilot Randomized Controlled Trial. Now, uh, this isn't the first trial of a biofeedback system in PD by any means, but it's better because it's more realistic, with subjects engaging activities like walking and transfers that are more closely resembling ADLs than, say, a balance board. And uh, the research population was a challenging one. Uh, here's Davide. People with, multiple, uh, with uh, Parkinson's disease with mild disorder, because this is not the typical kind of patient we usually treat here in the Nyaki Foundation, but we try to well recruit people having mobility disorders and balance disorders. What was uh, what turned out that they have a whole year score. This is a scale for Parkinson disease uh, severity, ranging from two point five to three. And for this scale, it the the two groups were well matched. So. In this, in this case, we can compare the, the, the two groups, even if for other, other measures there were small differences. Anyway, these are really the typical passion we see during our trial, and so we hope that these this, this results can also be transferred to other population of people that are usually treated for balance disorders. The gamepad system at the heart of their study relies on six inertial sensors that are worn on the upper and lower trunk and the upper and lower legs, 
and they transmit their data via Bluetooth to a computer. Uh, subjects can move about freely in the facility, whether in the gym, corridors, or outside. And the real-time processing didn't end at just the trunk and leg angles, but at the center of mass. Here's Ilaria. The movement of the center of mass, which is very important in uh, balance and gait task, because uh, Parkinson's disease patients has some problem in uh, correctly shifting his, their body weight uh, from one leg to another. So, um, by estimating the center of mass movement, we can control the body weight shift of this subject during, during uh, uh, some balance task, transfer task, for example, uh, stand up for, um, from a chair, gait initiation, or walking over obstacle, or turning. Now, using graphics on the computer screen and auditory warnings, in 20 therapy sessions over about seven weeks, they saw improved Berg balance scale scores that lasted for a month after the intervention. They didn't see improved gait, and that might be because the gait biofeedback wasn't as elaborate. Uh, it was just auditory warnings about trunk inclination and mediolateral angular displacement of the lower trunk. And what's next? Making it all more mobile, of course. Indeed, we are developing a new system and the idea was to use smartphones uh, instead of PC uh, screens to be able to provide a real portable unit and then provide acoustic uh, uh, cues for, for, for them also in open spaces and other environments. And how to make the gate biofeedback better? not by incorporating more visuals, but better acoustics. Acoustic feedback that is possible with a new headphone and headsets, and this could be more informative, and so probably could have a good feedback even in this dynamic situation. I see, that probably sounds safer too, because, because again, uh, you, do, you do need to actually look at the world around you uh, to some extent uh, when, when you're walking with impaired gait. Davide and Alaria have already applied for a grant to be able to pursue this next stage, and we wish them great success in that. Next up, we head to Phoenix, Arizona, and naturally we break out the ski poles. So with me now is Narayan Krishnamurthy. Uh, Dr. Krishnamurthy is an assistant professor at the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at Arizona State University. Uh, we're discussing his study out in the Archives of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation on pole striding, uh, the pole striding intervention improving gait and axial symptoms and mild to moderate Parkinson's disease. Uh, Dr. Krishnamurthy, welcome to the rehab cast. Thank you. So uh, with regards to this study uh, taking on uh, pole striding, also known as uh, pole walking or uh, Nordic pole walking, I've seen it called in some studies as well seems to be increasing in popularity. It's a type of physical activity that, kind of looking back at the history of it, Nordic societies haven't necessarily done for a very prolonged period of time, but it kind of simulates cross-country skiing, uh, like with a ski pole uh, in each hand, although obviously now there are specially designed poles uh, for this, and there's a, there's a company, uh, Extra Strider, that's marketing these products for folks, whether you have an, a health condition or not. Uh, could you kind of describe the activity to us and kind of what it looks like? 
Okay, actually, as you mentioned about accessstrider.com, uh, we got the polls for this study from that company. Actually, they provided these polls like uh, I think almost half the price of the retail price for um, for this research study. Pole walking um, involves uh, brisk walking uh, using the poles in a cross-country skiing fashion. And then importantly, it's a brisk walking with upright posture, with uh, greater movements of arm swing and trunk rotations compared to normal walking. And the pole walking is about 30 to 40 percent more aerobic than uh, normal walking. I think that's what's really surprising to me uh, as someone who hasn't tried the activity myself yet. I, I guess I've noticed it on occasion. You know, you're hiking a trail or something and somebody uh, goes by using uh, extra strider type poles. I hadn't really thought of it too much before. I'm very interested in it now, having read this study and having learned that it's actually requiring more physical activity. You might assume uh, seeing somebody you know, use what might look like a cane in each hand, perhaps they've got an orthopedic issue, they're trying to offload a joint. It's certainly useful for that, but it actually is requiring more energy because it's bringing in those upper body muscles as well, right? Right. Uh, actually, one can even, um, like um, uh, when they take a step, they can uh, push the pole and then they get greater momentum when walking. That I think makes them more aerobic than normal walking. Mm-hmm. It looks like you actually may even spend a little bit less time on your feet uh, as well because you're putting some of that uh, pressure, you know, through your hands and upper body, right? Right. There, there are some studies that showed that uh, the loading on the knees can be reduced uh, while they use the poles. And, you know, it certainly makes a lot of sense to look at it in Parkinson's disease. We'll talk about, you know, there have been some other studies. This isn't necessarily the first uh, to look at pole striding and Parkinson's disease, although it appears to be a more elegant type of study solving, looking at some of the problems that the other studies didn't take into account. This particular type of exercise has been explored for uh, certainly other medical conditions as well. We mentioned kind of orthopedic uh, type of, of issues. Uh, what, what are some er other areas where it's been looked at? I think, as you mentioned, it has been um, uh, used uh, for uh, people with orthopedic issues, and there are also uh, it has also been used in non-PD populations, and has been uh, shown to improve maximum oxygen uptake, better blood pressure control, and claudication pain. And I think, I, yeah, the claudication studies look like look like there were a few of those fairly good evidence for that. Now, talking about kind of bringing in this into uh, to PD in, in particular, you know, there's a there's a couple of prior studies that uh, that you've discussed here. There was there was one that was a negative, a, a German study um, uh, that was done in 2015. Uh, it used that that uh, principle um, uh, UPDRS uh, scale for Parkinson's disease as its main outcome measure. Uh, it actually mm. had a, had a negative outcome. What do you think might be the reason why that study came out uh, negatively? I think uh, the main uh, issue may be like um, uh, they haven't used uh, may not used sufficient sufficient number of gait steps uh, while evaluating. I think they used mainly a clinical score um, uh, called a unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, and uh, it is possible that uh, sometimes it may not pick up uh, exactly the gait and balance issues, especially uh, because uh, if you look at the UPDR score, it, it has different parts, and then uh, generally people use the motor examination part of the UPDRS, which we generally call as UPDRS uh, part three, and uh, it has many items, and some of the uh, items include gait and balance. Balance. Uh, so uh, it's not uh, entirely um, related to gait and balance. It has uh, items related to tremor, um, um, 
and other motor symptoms in PD. So uh, if those have not been uh, improved, then if you if uh, one looks on the overall motor examination, UPDRS part three, then uh, one might not see uh, improvements in those. And you did uh, use kind of more of a sophisticated uh, gait analysis uh, system as well, the uh, IDEA system by uh, Minisun. Why, why did you choose that? Actually, it gives step-by-step uh, -step parameters. And uh, first, uh, at the time, um, the best gate system that uh, I, uh, I was aware of is the uh, IDEA gate system. It was easy to use. Uh, and then um, uh, we collected uh, hundreds of steps. Uh, at every time point, we te tested the subjects. Uh, and also, there are a couple of reports in the literature which shows that we need at least about uh, 120 to 150 steps to reliably mm. calculate the variabilities in step time and stride time. Uh, if you use shorter gait trials and then focus on only uh, 10 to 20 uh, gait steps, then it's uh, uh, yeah, the variability measures that one can obtain from short trials are not that reliable. Okay, very good. Yeah, and we'll come back to this variability concept because it's very important in the trial. Now, in terms of the, the mechanics, uh, what, it, what it looks like, it's actually kind of a, a long study that you uh, conducted here over uh, a nine-month period of which, you know, there's kind of three months in the, in the center that are the, the training. And I think that it's uh, you know, relatively sophisticated in, in that regard and certainly more expensive to do a study like that. What is the importance of, so you, do, you did an initial uh, kind of baseline assessment and then three months later, uh, you know, just before you're starting to do the training, you do, you do another assessment, you do the training uh, for that 12-week period, you do a post-assessment, and then three months later, uh, a follow-up assessment. So beginning with that, you know, initial three months, you're asking people not to engage in any uh, particular aerobic uh, exercise or, or therapy activities that are uh, centered or may potentially, you know, improve their gait during that period of time. And I guess as expected, the study shows that there is you know, a little bit of, of decline in, in function, not significant, but you did see a, a decrement uh, in the measures there. Uh, and then, you know, as we'll discuss, there's a subsequent boost. But why kind of the importance of this so-called uh, detraining uh, three-month period to begin with? Yeah, because uh, generally uh, physical activity is highly recommended in people with PD, and especially people with PD in mild to moderate stages of the disease, they um, uh, they participate in different exercise activities. As far as we have seen, what I have seen in this um, uh, Phoenix metropolitan area, so uh, when we have them participate in the studies, and if they are uh, participating in an exercise program specifically uh, to improve gait and posture, that can significantly confound the results of uh, any changes due to the pole striding training. So we want them to get off from that uh, exercise routine, but we allowed uh, like uh, regular walking and stretching type of exercises. So we don't, uh, uh, we didn't want them to uh, participate in a um, uh, very structured uh, exercise program uh, that can confound the effects of the pole striding. That's why we uh, requested them to stop uh, participating in any exercise program for the first three months so that they come to that baseline. And then we started the intervention and then study the effects of the uh, pole striding on uh, different gait and balance measures. And uh, and you discuss in the in the trial the effects that you know in the discussion about you know you had you certainly did have that decrement there that uh, that I mentioned but ultimately the results you know kind of supersede that and then you have this uh, three month post uh, follow up period uh, there's there are some changes there but still many significant 
uh, retained uh, benefits in individual aspects of uh, step length and stride length and so forth. Uh, another kind of uh, mechanics question here is kind of the size of the trial. And this is a proof of uh, concept, you know, laying out, uh, I suppose, the case for a larger study, correct? All right. And uh, so this initial trial, uh, the, uh, we have 17 uh, subjects, let's see, 16, com 16 subjects completing uh, the therapy, uh, 15 of those, you know, fully compliant. Uh, one did not uh, do as many sessions as are necessary. Relatively small. Was that about the number that you were, that you were targeting? Uh, would you prefer to ask some, some more? Were they, you know, difficult to recruit for this trial? No, um, uh, we uh, targeted for about 15 to 16 subjects, and um, we did some power analysis based on the previous studies, and then we came up with this number. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I won't say the recruitment is easy because it's a very long-term uh, study. Uh, one needs to get committed for about uh, nine months, but we didn't have any great uh, difficulty in recruiting. Um, this study was uh, done in um, uh, Sun Health Research Institute. Uh, the uh, people uh, in the Sun City area, most of them um, are uh, targeted for this study. Uh, and uh, Dr. Schill, uh, who is currently uh, a director of the Mohandali Parkinson Center at Baron Neurological Institute, located in St. Joseph's Hospital and Medical Center, uh, was with the Banner Sun Health Research Institute at that time. So we targeted people in that area, in that neighborhood, and uh, it was not easy, and at the same time, it was not very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we could uh, get uh, people participating in the study. And uh, in terms of talking about everybody else that was involved, this is a study that involves uh, recreational therapy, too. There, uh, it was a recreational therapist who uh, uh, trained the individual subjects on the correct use of, uh, of the pole striding, and they were uh, there at every session. Is that correct? Right, right. Um, uh, Darlene O'Donnell uh, is a recreation therapist at Mogamadali Parkinson Center, and uh, she was involved in this study, and then uh, she she provided uh, uh, training uh, on pole striding for those uh, subjects, and then she was there for every session or uh, intervention session across mm -hmm. the 12-week period. You know, certainly with any type of therapy trial, you have to think you have to think to some extent about the you know the, the the therapeutic relationship in and of itself, and how much that may have kind of a, a bit of a placebo effect. Obviously, um, this trial is uh, one in, in which it's not being con compared to say a control group of say just walkers, also with a positive therapist egging them along or something like that. But that's something that could be done in a larger uh, or subsequent trial as well. Correct. Right, yeah, because in this study, each subject served as their own control. Uh, we didn't have uh, another group or we didn't do uh, a randomized control design. Uh, so the uh, in future, uh, we should focus on those type of uh, uh, trial designs and uh, may include more number of uh, subjects too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now looking at some of the, the measures and the outcomes, uh, you know, we talked about the, uh, the gate analysis that was being done. You were able to parse out uh, in particular, certainly looking closely at uh, step length, stride length, uh, the speed, uh, but also this uh, uh, the variability, which is very important uh, for fall risk uh, in particular. All of those with very meaning, uh, significant changes in the, in the pre and post, uh, and many well retained at uh, at three months post. Um, in terms of uh, step length and stride length. Um, uh, you're reporting 9% uh, uh, improvement speed uh, going up by 11%. Uh, uh, that's uh, 
comes down to 11.5 centimeters a second. Uh, you talk about the fact that that is better than the, the, the kind of minimum 10 centimeters a second that are needed for a meaningful change in an older population uh, experiencing some disability. So definitely a, a very important outcomes there. Um, the, the variability uh, measures, though, those you know, closely linked to fall, um, uh, I imagine you're, it seems like you're, you're focusing on, on those in, in particular, perhaps proudest of those. I don't know. Can you tell me uh, more about variability and why that's so important in, in PD? Yeah, uh, mainly people with uh, Parkinson's disease, they have uh, the uh, inability to generate sufficient step length. Because of this inefficiency, the step length they take and then the time to take step between two steps uh, is much more variable. Uh, it's not uh, uh, very rhythmic uh, as in the case of people without Parkinson's disease. Uh, these measures have been shown by many researchers in this area uh, that they are uh, independent risk factors uh, for falls in this population. So uh, pole striding is very effective. Uh, we have shown that it's effective in reducing the uh, step time variability. So we think uh, along with the increasing the step length, the speed, and um, uh, improving the gait and balance uh, items of uh, UPDRS scores and reducing the step time variability, um, I, I strongly believe uh, that uh, pole striding can reduce fall risk, uh, fall risk in this population. And, and certainly uh, we, have to, we have to speculate or extrapolate from other studies to some extent about exactly what the, the brain mechanism may be, but the activity of pole striding, you're, you're obviously getting uh, much more proprioceptive uh, feedback. Uh, the, the, you know, the subjects are perhaps more, more aware of their body balance as well, bringing in that upper body uh, also. You know, clearly, unless you bring in, you know, other brain networks to, you know, to accommodate for those that are that are damaged by Parkinson's disease. Mm. Actually, uh, as I mentioned, like uh, since um, uh, pole striding uh, involves uh, uh, greater um, trunk and uh, uh, trunk rotations and uh, upper body movements, I think that uh, significantly helps them to take uh, big steps because uh, as we as one practice uh, regularly taking bigger steps and then swinging their arms bigger as if they are going to handshake with someone for every step. Mm -hmm. And if uh, as one practice this regularly, uh, it's, it's something like um, um, uh, uh, targeted movements that once uh, that if one practice these movements every day, then uh, based on the plasticity effects, uh, one can improve that even without using the uh, pole striding. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And as you mentioned, that they are getting the uh, sensory feedback uh, by uh, from the landing of the poles uh, when they are using the poles. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that also helps in uh, um, uh, inferring the uh, timing when taking the steps, and that can uh, uh, that might have played a role in reducing the step time variability. Yeah, it's so it's so huge to find any way any means that can uh, encourage someone with Parkinson's disease to uh, to really uh, get a bigger step, and and it, this is a great solution to that because you are providing another point of contact and kind of security with the ground, but encouraging that person to to swing forward uh, further and and kind of build up comfort uh, with that new type of gait dynamic that's obviously carrying over in the further assessments, you know, even without the poles. Uh, now, along uh, in terms of the mechanics of the study, you are you're doing the the activity on medication, the assessment off of medication, correct? Right, correct. And uh, what's the importance of that? 
So we asked the subjects to come uh, with a medication on condition during the intervention sessions because they are doing the intervention uh, three times a week for about 12 weeks. Uh, so it may be difficult for them to uh, give their best uh, uh, doing the pulse riding in the medication off condition. Mm -hmm. The main reason for doing the evaluation sessions uh, during medication on medication off uh, condition is since we did the evaluation at different time points of the study, and then there is a pretty good chance that uh, the medication uh, dosage can be changed across a nine month period. So um, that's why we want to go for the medication off state so that our results uh, won't be confirmed by the dosage of the medication. Mm -hmm. You're mentioning medication, medications were changed uh, over the course of nine months in, in kind of a positive way. Can you discuss that? I think um, seven subjects, um, uh, they didn't um, uh, add any change in the medication across a nine month period and four of the subjects actually reduced their medication. And I think it's a, it, it's, it's a pretty impressive that uh, this exercise training can uh, uh, preserve their function so there is no need to increase the medication and even reduce the medication across a nine-month period. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty impressive and I'm pretty happy that um, um, we came up with an intervention that can really help these people. Yeah, and that, that's also reflected uh, in, in the Hone and Yar scale, that H, H and Y scale. Uh, it's right. really, you know, just a seven-point ordinal, ordinal scale and you did see improvement, you know, functional improvement rating on that scale, which is kind of uh, hard to do. Uh, and, uh, and you maintained that um, at the end of the nine-month period. Right, right. The improvements in the HY score and also the gait and balance items of the UPDRS scores, they were preserved even uh, um, uh, during the follow-up evaluation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, clearly a, a real proof of concept trial here. Uh, you've, you've made the case for, uh, you know, doing a, a more elaborate uh, trial as well. Um, kind of what are your, what are your thoughts about uh, what you would like to do next and take this research into, uh, into perhaps a bigger study? Mm -hmm. uh, doctors usually advocate physical exercise as an uh, important adjunct to medication in the treatment of PD. However, regular exercise activity is pretty challenging in this population. Uh, the main barriers are identified as low outcome expectation, lack of time to exercise, and fear of falling. But uh, uh, if you uh, consider pole uh, striding, it actually takes the uh, takes out the fear of falling. Now they have two poles in their hand. They have increased base of support, so that takes the uh, fear of falling issue uh, from the main. Uh, uh, from the main barriers, and also like now people um, um, now uh, people with PD know from uh, uh, our study and also from the previous literature that pole striding can really help. So that takes the uh, another barrier that's the expectation of the lack of ex um, uh, benefits from the exercise. Now they are sure that it will be helpful, and then they don't have the fear of falling because they have better base of support from uh, two poles. Uh, so we can reduce many of the barriers of uh, people uh, sticking to regular uh, activity. So I would like to uh, develop a pole striding based exercise behavioral therapy for people with PD as the next step. That makes, makes perfect sense. Uh, so 
Uh, I'm sure uh, Extra Strider must be thrilled with their ROI here. You know, this is a positive study. I mean, uh, talk about getting a good, a good deal, you know, providing you these polls at 50% off. Uh, it's yet another, right. st- another study, another medical condition. Uh, we're seeing a positive benefit. Of course, uh, pole striding uh, is something that uh, anybody at, at any level can do, whether you have any, any type of physical impairment or not. Uh, I'm interested in it myself after reading the study. I think I'm going to try it out. Have you tried it out yet? Oh, yeah, I practiced a lot. As soon as I got this idea and I, I got this study funded, I, I think um, I joined a pole striding group uh, in uh, Scottsdale area in the Phoenix Metropolitan. Great. And then I, uh, I used poles um, uh, um, very frequently. Awesome. Okay. Uh, well, I really uh, enjoyed this chat. Hopefully our listeners will too. Um, an excellent overview of the study here, which I encourage you to, of course, read in the pages of the journal for yourself. Uh, Dr. Krishnamurthy, thank you very much for joining us here on RehabCast, and I uh, hope, hope to have you back uh, before too long. Thank you so much. And that's it for this first edition of RehabCast. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope we'll see you in Atlanta this year. Please share the podcast. Please rate it. And send in your suggestions and comments to docvox at gmail.com. That's D-O-C-V-O-X at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.